0: Well, if I don't get to preach this morning, which is my favorite thing on the planet to do, by the way, uh, I get to do the next best thing, which means I get to talk about a man that I love and admire, a man who will preach to you. And I cannot wait for it Jeremy Kuhn. And I have been friends for almost 10 years, and he's easily one of the most admirable and enjoyable men in my entire life. Uh, Jeremy, uh, he's not only a full-time husband to Stephanie and a full-time father to uh, Samantha and Lizzie and Brady and Lexi and Marcus, um, but he also uh, works full-time at the correctional facility in Spokane. Um, He's in in law enforcement, so what what I love about his job is that he not only gets to lock up the bad guys, but he also gets to share the gospel with bad guys and with his co-workers, so it's it's a great ministry for him. And if that doesn't sound busy enough, because everyone should just take on more, he's also a full-time seminary student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, So uh, the man you're about to see uh, stand up here somehow does life on two, three hours of sleep a night and pulls it off and does well. So he's going to be getting his MDiv in a couple years and and longs uh, eventually, uh, I believe, to be in uh, full-time pastoral ministry, uh, pastoring a church. In addition to that, he and his wife, Stephanie, are uh, faithful servants, uh, ministers in Faith, uh, Faith Bible Church in Spokane, which is where Sarah and I were, and, and they, they labor tirelessly, and they demonstrate the kind of uh, word-centered, faithful, robust ministry that is just a, a strength to any local church. They invest the word of God into people's lives. They disciple people, and, and, and it's modeled first and foremost by the discipling of their own children. They're highly imperfect, to be sure, but they're the kind of people that any church would die to have in their congregation. There's lots of things, a big list of uh, about things about Jeremy that none of which he's going to want to hear me say publicly. But these are things that I admire about him. Um, I admire Jeremy because he's a man of exemplary humility and holiness. What you see is what you get. He is the real deal. There's nothing hidden, nothing to hide. I love him because he's a a brilliant intellect with an uncanny ability to examine and analyze the text of scripture and to deal faithfully with it. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth that exactly defines who Jeremy is. He's a loving shepherd of his family. I was reminded of that just before we left for Spokane and spent time dinner at their house and watching him shepherd his kids and, and love his family. A great encouragement to me. He's a stalwart defender of the faith. Put it to you this way, if I was in a debate with someone, I would want Jeremy on my team and actually I would just step back and let him take over the debate. He's a theologian of profound precision and today he is our usher, who will exegetically, exegetically escort us to the throne room through the pages of scripture. So would you please welcome with me Jeremy Kuhn.
1: Thank you. Jared talks too much. <laughs> um, thank you for the warm welcome. I'm a newcomer here, and uh, I'm just really happy to get to join you. Um, my family likes to take road trips normally. On little vacations and part of that is going to see uh, folks that we've sent off in some way or another either kicked them out or sent them uh. but in all reality Jared is somebody that we uh, lovingly sent off as a man who was equipped and uh, eagerly waiting for a time to to shepherd a, a body of people and I was really looking forward to coming here to sit under Jared's preaching, and as you can see, he turned the tables on me because I'm not going to be here another Sunday um, in the foreseeable future. Um, but this is what I want to say about Jared, since he was so kind to say things about me. Um, in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, when Christ ascended, he says he gave gifts uh, to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And that is what you have in Jared. He is Christ's gift to you. And he played an instrumental role in bringing me to where I am just with the encouragements that he gave um, for excellence. And I just pray that you would utilize the gift that Christ has given you in him. He's one who seeks God's glory, and he wants you to experience the pleasures of that glory in your own lives as you serve the church. So uh, I've spent the past couple of months studying Psalm 2 for a seminary class, which I have to correct Jared on one thing. I am a part-time student, not full-time. I'm going about half-time, so a three-year program has taken me about six years. Um, But anyways, this psalm I've just spent so much time in, and I'm excited to share it with you, but it's really shaped me and convicted me and giving me another reason to delight in our Savior. And so let's look at it again. I, will just, I just want to read it one more time because it never hurts to read God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Uh, there's a guy named Michael Haken. He's a professor of history at church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he was born in Birmingham, England in 1953. And by the age of 14, he had embraced Marxism as a philosophy, a way of life, and something that he was quite eagerly and anxiously pursuing. And it wasn't because he was raised in the home of Marxists. He was raised in a Roman Catholic home. But it was Roman Catholicism and Christian hypocrisy that had convinced him that Christianity was a scam. He was captivated by hatred and rebellion against society and had fully embraced Marxist ideology. And he was a rebel against God, the God that he had heard about while he was growing up. In our fallen nature, we are born enemies of God, and we spend our lives rebelling against his rule. We tend to live our lives without any fear of God, and we reject his authority over us. And we tend to think that there's nothing that God is really going to do about it. Or if he is, we just really don't care. Being born his enemies, we are in need of salvation, a salvation every day. We try to rule our own lives, and we tend to make a mess out of them when we do. And whether our lives are messy or not, The greatest problem with our rebellion is that it will lead to God's wrath being poured out on us. God is jealous for his glory. God is wrathful against his enemies. And he is the only one who has a remedy for us. We have only to listen to his word, embrace his promises, and place our faith in Christ. So the remedy we're going to be looking at today is from Psalm 2. And I'd like to give you a brief background. Jared hinted at this a little bit. But the book of Psalms is not just a random collection of of songs and poems, but it can be uh, considered a sort of poetic commentary on the nation of Israel. Uh, You may have noticed in your English Bibles that it's organized into five books. And these books can be summarized uh, particularly in, in a few ways. But one of the ways to think about it is with the first book we have Psalms 1 through 41, that covered David's rise to power through affliction. All of these are looking forward to a time of the Davidic king, the Messiah, reigning on this earth. Um, So David's reign is a preview of that. The second book, Psalms 42 through 72, covered David's reign to Solomon. Book three, Psalms 73 to 89, covers Solomon to the destruction of the temple. Book 4, Psalms 90 through 106 are like an exilic reflection looking back on Yahweh's past deliverance of Israel. So they've come into exile, and now they're looking back at how God has been faithful, even amongst their rebellion. And in Book 5, Psalms 107 through 150, these point to the hope and future deliverance of Israel and to the rest of the nations, with God serving as king on this world. Now, Psalms 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the Psalter. Both of these give the means of blessing. In Psalm 1, you may have noticed that the blessed man is the one who delights in the law of Yahweh and meditates on it day and night. Psalm 2 says the blessed man is the one who takes refuge in the Son, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. In between these pictures, we have a picture of the wicked. In Psalm 1, we see the wicked are those who scoff and scorn against God and his people, and they will not stand in the judgment. And in Psalm 2, we see they are the rebellious who cast off the rule of God for their own independence. And they are driven away like chaff. Uh, But the truth is, is that these rebels are under his judgment. God has proclaimed that his king will rule them with a rod and shatter them. God has also given them a remedy, the means of salvation to his wrath, and it is this. Listen carefully. You must tremble. At the wrath of God against his enemies, so that you will repent and joyfully submit to the Son. Again, you must tremble at the wrath of God against his enemies, so that you will repent and joyfully serve the Son. This morning, we're going to dig into the depths of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is made up of four stanzas, three verses each, and we're going to look at each one in turn. Uh, just to give you a roadmap of where we're going. But as we do this, we're going to seek to expose our own sin so that we can apply the remedy that it gives because it's transforming and it's necessary. So for the first point, we're going to look at the need to repent of our own rebellion. In order for you to tremble at the wrath of God against his enemies so that you will take delight in serving the Son, you need to first understand the nature of the rebellion of God's enemies and repent of your own. Again, you need to understand the nature of the rebellion of God's enemies and repent of your own. Look again with me at verses one through three. The first stanza draws our attention to the rebellion of the kings and rulers of the earth against Yahweh and against his anointed. So, the Hebrew word here that is translated anointed in most Bibles is where the term Messiah comes from, which is where the term Christ comes from. This is against Yahweh the self-existent God of the universe, and his Christ. These nations, peoples, kings, and rulers are representative of all of humanity who are rebelling against God. And as you can see, verse 1 begins with the question, why? Now, this is not a, uh, a question that's seeking an answer. This, the psalmist knows why they're rebelling. This is a question that is rhetorical, but it's filled with surprise, astonishment, and angst. Why? Why? to the nation's rage and the people's plot in vain. He is filled with lament. It's the same kind of question that Ezekiel asked in Ezekiel 18.31. Why will you die, O Israel? He sees the rebellion of mankind, and he sees that it's an empty effort. Their raging is as powerful as a mist against Mount Everest, or as powerful as a gnat trying to hold back an elephant. They are raging against the most sovereign God of the universe and against his Messiah. The word translated as plot in the ESV is the same word that's translated as meditate in Psalm 1-2, which is informative for us because it shows us that while the blessed man meditates on the law of the Lord, the wicked are plotting about how they can rebel against that law of the Lord. They're deliberating. One deliberating over how blessed the law is, and one's deliberating over how to rebel from that law. In verse 2, we see the kings and the rulers are doing just that. They are taking their stand against God, and they have set themselves up as antagonists, raging against the king of the universe. But what is their plan? What do they propose to do? Well, they seek to break away from the bondage of God's rule, they consider it to be slavish and shameful. They consider it no less degrading than if the utmost disgrace were thrown upon them. They see God's rule as a terrible burden, and they think it keeps them from being free. It threatens their own sovereignty, and they will have nothing of it. Now, this rebellion is as, gold, as old as the Garden of Eden. There, Adam and Eve, by taking the counsel of the serpent, turned away from God's instructions and sought their own independence. The very idea of independence, though, is an illusion, for they are really submitting to Satan. They were submitting to his counsel. And this is the rebellion that has plagued human history since that time. It's reflected in Cain's refusal to rule over his own sin, which leads to the murder of his brother. It was reflected in the violent men of Noah's day who were washed away from the face of the earth. It was reflected in the builders of Babel who sought to make a name for themselves rather than to honor God and on through the nation of Israel as they rejected God's rule over them time and again, as well as with every other nation on earth. But what is the nature of this rebellion? What are the instruments of the warfare that these people have? Well, it isn't with rock and sling. It's not with bow and arrow. It's not with a glistening sword, and it's not with nuclear warheads. No, this this warfare is against the revelation of God. It is a rejection of God's revealed word. And this warfare started and continues with the same doubting question that was posed to Eve on that dreadful day in the garden. Did God actually say? As we read on, this doubting question turned into an outright denial of the truth of God's word. It was a denial of death. It was a denial of punishment. It was a denial of punishment. It was a denial of something we cannot have It was a break from joyful service to God and the lie of real independence from God. And this false independence is what Paul refers to as separation from God in Ephesians two twelve. Though it may feel like independence, it is really a state of being without hope in this world, of being darkened in understanding, and being hardened of heart. The results of this attitude. Or the, This results in the attitude of the rebels in Psalm 2. They are seeking to cast off the cords of God which are revealed in his word. And ultimately, ultimately, it is slavery. It is slavery to the passions of the flesh. It is slavery to sensuality. It is slavery to greed. It is slavery to covetousness. It's slavery to hatred and sin. And ultimately, it's slavery to Satan himself. And the nature of rebellion against God is the psychotic belief that life apart from God is better that it is free and that it's rewarding. Now, it's very easy for, hear, for us to hear this and to start thinking about our unsaved friends or family members or neighbors. It's really easy for us to think about that other guy who really should be hearing this today. Um, and it's very easy, in fact, to think about extremists or idolaters or persecutors, which are really and truly enemies of God. Um, One contemporary example that comes to people's minds all the time right now is the sexual revolution that's going on all around us. The declaration from God that there are only two genders is being rejected. The declaration that sex is only a sanctified activity in the confines of marriage is being rejected. The idea of marriage itself, of being between a man and a woman, or even being necessary at all, is being rejected. Um, This is one example of many of the world casting off the cords that God has placed. And I have a question for you. Do you lament the rebellion of mankind against God like the psalmist does? Or do you feel indignation over them? Are you apathetic and not really concerned about what their eternal state is going to be? And a more pointed question for you is this. How do you rage and plot in vain against Yahweh and his Messiah? You may be saved, and you may have put your faith in Christ. But in what ways do you reject God's word in your own life? Every time we sin, we do this. Every time we place our trust in our work or in our reputation or any kind of position, we do this. Every time we devote our lives to another love that that displaces God from his rightful place, we have done this. Every time we misrepresent Christ with our actions, our attitudes, or our words so that his name is blasphemed, we've done this. We are rejecting God's word over this. Every time we disrespect our parents, not too many children in here, but we still have parents, most of us. Every time we have unrighteous anger or that lustful look, or we take something that's not our own, or we lie, or we're discontent, we are doing this. Men, do you lead your wife and kids? Or do you feel like it's a burden? Is it so much of a burden that you passively let life go by? Do you understand that this is rebellion against God? Do the rest of you find yourselves guilty of sins of omission by not carrying out the the God given responsibilities that He has given you? In all of these things, you and I, we reject God's revelation and we reject God's rule. And this is a reality that we always need to be mindful of for ourselves. We have grace in Christ, but we need to humbly acknowledge that we are plagued with rebellion in our hearts. And the Bible's remedy for this is for us to continually turn to Christ, to seek his mercy, to fill our minds and our hearts with God's word. You should be meditating on God's law day and night. It's awfully hard to do as Psalm 119 says, blessed is the man who walks in the law of the Lord. It is awfully hard to do that when that law is not anchored in our hearts. We are faced with shouting and raging voices from our culture, from the world around us, from the devil, and from our own flesh. And we need to counter those voices with the voice of God. You need to be learning God's word if you're going to follow God's word. We also need to check our attitude towards God's word. How you view God's word as a whole will impact how you view all the rest of it. Do you have the attitude of the psalmist's? Who delight in the law of God, who see it as more valuable than thousands of silver and gold pieces, or sweeter than honey from the comb? Do you see the law of God as the law of liberty, as James calls it? I want you to pray to increase your love for God's word, for God to do that for you. I want you to pray for God to increase your trust in Christ, which is the means of our daily salvation. And it's the means of our growth in holiness and godliness, and it's the means for us to know him who bought us. If at any time you feel like it is a bond, you want to burst apart, I want you to be reminded by what Psalm 107, verse 14 says. There it says that God is the one who brought them out of darkness and in the shadow of death, and he's the one who burst those bonds apart. Same language. God is the one who breaks the bonds. We cannot do it. And the real bond is a rejection of God's word and its slavery to this rebellion, Christ is the one who frees us from the true bond, and therefore you must repent of your own rebellion so that you can be free of it. Now the situation looks grim, and just like any great series on Netflix is designed to help us or cause us to binge watch and look to the next episode with the cliffhanger, that's what the psalmist is doing here. Uh, so for, so we've seen the nature of the rebellion of God's enemies. Now we'll move on to verses four through six and see the response of Yahweh. So, second, in order for you to tremble, at the wrath of God against his enemies, so that you will repent and joyfully serve the Son, you must recognize the just nature of the response of Yahweh against his enemies and repent of your own lack of fear of God. Again, you must recognize the just response of of God towards his enemies and repent of your lack of fear of God. So let me explain. Look at verses 4 through 6. Now this stanza Runs parallel to the first, same kind of pattern where we have action and speech. And it shows the response of Yahweh to the rebels. This is the beginning of his pronouncement of judgment against his enemies. Now verse 4 points us to he who sits in the heavens. This places Yahweh in marked contrast to those rebels. Their dominion is on the earth while his is in heaven. Their dominion is his footstool. God is in heaven on his glorious throne, and he is the most high king. And what does this most high king in heaven do? He laughs. He laughs at their ridiculous plans. He is not threatened by them, and despite their rejection of his word, he will not be dethroned. In his laughter against them, he holds them in derision. The sovereign of the universe is going to frustrate the plans of the the rebels by proving that they're vain. You may notice that the spelling of Lord in verse 4 is not all caps like we see in other places, which signifies the, the divine name of Yahweh. This one is translated from Adonai, which signifies his sovereignty and that he is master. Yahweh is the master, and there's nothing that the nations are going to do to change that. Nothing is more necessary for God than to speak against these rebels who are ready to revolt against him. He's ready for war, and they are unable really to do anything. And he speaks in his wrath, signifying his just judgment against their plots. And what is this fury of speech of Yahweh? He says in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Commentator Ralph Jacobson notes that the enthronement of the Davidic king is part of the Lord's answer to the rebellion of the kings of the earth. The king appointed by the Lord, which is Jesus, on his holy throne is what will terrify the rebels. And they're going to be terrified because they know that they're going to be coming face to face with the one who has authority over their very lives. Now, God has always responded to the rebellion of mankind in this way, with his wrath. This was first demonstrated in the Garden of Eden when God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden and guarded its way back with the sword of the cherubim. He destroyed the wicked, rebellious of Noah's day with the flood. He dispersed and frustrated the plans of the builders of Babel. He exiled Israel and Judah, his chosen people, out of their own land because they rejected his rule. These are actions of God's look of derision upon his enemies. It's his laughter against their revolt. And he lets them know he will not be displaced as king. He has set his king on Zion. They will have the king that Yahweh, their God, will choose, and it is he that they will serve. This appointed king is Jesus, who is coming again to reign right here. Now, as a corrections officer, I have often encountered people who reject authority, believe it or not. And for the most part, when people come in, they're pretty compliant. They they don't uh, fight with us all the time or anything like that. Uh, but there's a few people in our area, and I don't know if you have them here, but they call themselves sovereign citizens. And they carry this little card that tells the arresting officer when they get pulled over, hey, I'm a sovereign citizen. I don't have to obey your laws. I don't have to answer your questions. And uh, so they carry this around just to assert their authority. However... Law enforcement officers, they don't buy it and they don't really recognize the authority that these people say that they have and neither do judges. If a sovereign citizen is found guilty of a legislated crime, they are not saved from the judgment of the court and they're going to face judgment regardless of whatever authority they say they have. And many times that I've seen, when they come to face the judge, they're like anticipating a good outcome, like everything's going to work out in their favor. And they actually act surprised when judgments ruled against them. It's crazy. Um, But just like those sovereign citizens, they need to recognize the authority of the state. We need to recognize the nature of God's just response. We need to recognize his authority. And we need to recognize that with fear. So what is your response when you feel like disobeying God's commands? What is your response when you do disobey his commands? Right now, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right now, God hands people over to their sin when they disobey and live in opposition to his word. They consider it freedom, but it is slavery. And they have no fear of God before their eyes. God will not be mocked and his rule will not be thwarted. And when we come face to face with our own sin, we should consider God's just response against that sin. He will speak to us in his wrath if we have not turned to him. If you think you're wise or able to hide your sin, you need to remember that your sin will be found out. God knows every secret of the heart, and his wrath is meant to terrify you. His Son has ascended to the throne of the glory in heaven. And the question is, does that terrify you? Well, if you're living an unrepentant sin, it should. Very often in our American Christian context, we have a, a heavy emphasis on the love of God. And sometimes we even play off God's wrath in order to favor his love. Now, while it is true that he is full of love and steadfast kindness, it's only against the backdrop of his wrath that the love of God has only real appeal You and I know that we don't have a healthy fear of God when we sin. Every time we sin, we put that on display, especially when we sin on purpose. It is outright unbelief. Do you get that? When we sin, we're saying, you know, I really don't believe that God said what he said, or I don't believe that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. We don't believe that God will punish sin. And if we do, we don't believe he's going to punish us. We don't fear him. It is insanity. It's like the little dog that you see in the window when you're walking your German Shepherd down the street, thinking he's going to come out and handle things. Um, I want, want you to consider, too, that, like in the book of Proverbs, it opens up with the fear of the Lord. All of this instruction on morality and wise living is fronted by the fear of the Lord. And in Ecclesiastes, Solomon ends the book by saying, This is the whole purpose of life, to fear God and keep His commandments. And I also want you to consider that the command to fear God is an act of mercy. It is designed to steer us clear of the danger of His wrath. Most of us don't commit crimes because we fear being arrested. Um, if we are ever tempted to, to commit a crime, we don't. We don't want to go to jail. For uh, Paul writes about this in Romans 13. Starting in verse 3, he writes, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now listen to this. For he is a servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now we use fear in our parenting by threatening discipline for disobedience. If you're an employer, you will use fear threatening your employees with loss of work, loss of job, if they don't do what's expected of them. Now, that's not the only way we deal with our uh, people that we have under our authority. But if we want to keep their attention, that's not going to be absent. And so it is with God towards us. He calls us to fear. And if you're living in unrepentant sin, living as your own ruler, your own master, you need to consider the just wrath of God against your sin that he has prepared for you. And I want you to cultivate, learn to cultivate a fear of the Lord. If you don't, you will be cast off and condemned. Do not harden your hearts against him, but turn and acknowledge his authority and turn and acknowledge the one he has set as the authority, the king in Zion. So we've seen the nature of the rebellion of God's enemies and we've seen The nature of God's just response against him. Now we're going to turn to verses 7 through 9 and see the nature of the reign of the Son. So third, in order for you to tremble at the wrath of God against his enemies so that you will repent and take refuge in the Son, you must recognize the sovereign reign of the Son and repent of not serving King Jesus. Again, you must recognize the sovereign reign of the Son and repent of not serving King Jesus look at verses 7 through 9. God has appointed his king, and now we hear from him. The first thing we see is that he's going to tell us of a decree. This decree is the title deed of Yahweh to the son, saying you are now the inheritor of the universe. But this decree includes three things. It includes his sonship, it includes his inheritance, and it includes his rule. The first order of the decree is the sonship of the king. Now, this is a clear reference to the Davidic covenant of Second Samuel 7. Listen, uh, as I read verses 12 through 14. This is Yahweh speaking to David. He says, "When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." This established God's covenant with David. And for the kings who sat on David's throne from the time of him, he would be a father to them, and they would be his sons. From the strictly human kings that came from David's line, uh, this language of begotten can probably be viewed in terms of adoption. They're not his literal offspring, obviously, but he's treating them as such. And for those who believed, you could also probably consider this language as language of new birth. When Jesus came, the only begotten of the father This is not the language of adoption. It is the language of an intimate and personal relationship. It's a relationship that is so close that the Son stands as the full and real representative of the Father. To know the Son is to know the Father. And Jesus says, as Jesus says to Philip in John 14 9, the sovereign rule of the Father is reflected in the sovereign rule of the Son. And the fulfillment of this in Jesus is confirmed in two key passages one at his baptism. When the Father declares from heaven, this is my beloved Son, and also at his transfiguration. Both of those times, he says those words. Nathaniel Nathaniel, uh, recognized this in John 2, 49, when he cries out, you are the Son of God. Not just that. You are the King of Israel. He saw that these two were connected. And as awesome as this is, that the Son would be so intimately connected to the Father, That's not all there is to this decree. The psalmist continues in verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Just as David responded to the promises of God in 2 Samuel 7 with a prayer, asking God to fulfill those promises from verse 18 onward, Yahweh is encouraging his son to ask for his inheritance. His inheritance includes the nations, which are rebelling in verse 1. You see that? His inheritance includes all of the ends of the earth, full of rebels. And this is a global rule. As God's rule is reflected in the sun, God's universal reign is made manifest through the rule of the king over foreign nations. There is no place outside of the sun's dominion. And the third, the decree continues in verse nine, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. As believers, we look forward to the day when the sun will rain upon the earth. It is the day of our final salvation. But for the rebellious nations, this is the day that they will have to be dealt with, which is what we have here. The sun, when he returns, will make all things new, but not before he destroys his enemies. What this verse shows us is the power that these rebels have is as fragile as fired clay. There will be no strength to withstand his rule. The reformer John Calvin noted that this rule signifies that even though many will not willfully submit, all will will be made to. Henry Ironside observes that his rule will be harsh. They will be broken by Yahweh's power and by Messiah's power. Now, this passage obviously points to Jesus. We see this many times as we read our New Testament. Um, We know this. The New Testament authors, when they cite this, they're always pointing to Jesus and the implications of his person and his role as the sovereign king of the universe. Like I mentioned a moment ago, we see this in his baptism and his transfiguration. And this worldwide dominion of Jesus is something that's prefigured as early as Adam and Eve when they are told that they are supposed to have dominion over the earth. So what we see with the the fulfillment of this promise to the Son and with Christ is the fulfillment of the promise that Adam and Eve could not fulfill. It is a promise that's reflected again with Abraham when he is told that kings and nations will come from him and that the blessings would come from him. Um, and again, when the pictures start to point to this messianic figure, in Psalm 72, 8 it says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's foretold in the glorious throne room scene in Daniel 7 where the Son of Man comes down to the Ancient of Days and dominion is given to him over all peoples, nations, and languages. This is really important for our understanding of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. There, the resurrected Christ, the Son of God, proclaims his authority over all of heaven and earth. There he commands his disciples to go and make more disciples. This is the beginning of Jesus' beginning to make his claim on his inheritance. Now, we often don't think of inheritance in such a lofty, Grand scheme, and it's hard for us to grasp. Most of us, if we don't inherit a debt, we'll just inherit a small estate. Um, and the, probably the closest analogy that I could find was that of Queen Elizabeth II right now. When her father died in 1952, she became the Queen of England, and she inherited the authority that England had. And right now, even to this day, there are 16 of what are called commonwealth realms that she has final authority over. Before her time, though, wars and battles and treaties all changed the the influence of Britain, including our own United States, as you all well know. So this rule of the monarchy had limits. Even though some revolts led to violent attempts to maintain control, some countries, like our own, gained independence over the power of Britain. But it will not be so with the reign of the sun. His rule is and always will be over the whole earth, and those who resist him will face his rod. When he returns, as recorded in Revelation 19, his company coming will be accompanied by a holy vengeance against his enemies. Listen to what Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16 says. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. This is the holy, the mighty, and the awesome reign of the Son, and his enemies do not stand a chance. Even though the reign of earthly kingdoms come and go, the Son's is infinite and eternal, and you must recognize the nature of his sovereign reign. And what impact does that have on your life? Do you know that your lives are defined as believers by his kingdom? What do we do with this truth? How do we handle it? Do we find ourselves submitting to his rule? And do we seek or find ourselves seeking to advance his kingdom? If you're sitting here today, it's likely that you affirm that Jesus is Lord and that he will come again and make a claim on his inheritance. But I exur- urge you to examine your own lives. See what ways you're making a claim on your own kingdom. Is your life full of personal pursuits? Do you work for the food that perishes? Are your goals and aspirations only for this life? Or are you looking ahead? And if you're not looking ahead, if this is true that you're just living for now and today, I urge you to repent and seek the kingdom of the sovereign king, Jesus. And if you're his, you have been given a mission in this life to serve him and his kingdom. Your first responsibility, no, your first privilege, is to devote yourself To the service of our King Jesus. You need to be soaking yourself in his wonderful word. You need to be growing in your knowledge of him and through your knowledge of him you need to be and will be growing in holiness and pursuing godliness. You need to be praying for his work in this world, for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Your second responsibility is your privilege of serving your brothers and sisters in Christ who are sitting with you here today. You need to be building up one another with God's word. You need to be like David's friend, Jonathan, who recognized that a kingdom was coming that was not his own. You need to use your gifts to build up the church, show hospitality to one another, build one another up in love. God's word directs us in Ecclesiastes to enjoy the fruits of our labors. They are God's gift. But if these gifts are not producing thanks to God and generous hearts with one another, they're not being used as God intended. Your third responsibility and privilege is to be looking beyond your own lives to those who are not his yet. You need to be looking with that same lament that the psalmist gives in verse 1 towards his enemies. How many people do you know who don't know Christ and will face his judgment? How many will God uh, crush with his rod of iron? God has placed you in this city, this vast city of millions, for a purpose. And that purpose is to make known his rule and to make disciples of the multitudes around you. Pray for your heart to grow in compassion, even a dreadful angst against or for those who are standing against God. And lastly, pray for and support missions. I hear that you have, very, um, you have missionaries that you support here, and that is great. But even if you're sitting here and that's your heart to go and do missions, seek out ways to, to fill that, fulfill that role. So, so far we've seen the nature of mankind's rebellion. We've seen the nature of Yahweh's just response of the rebels. And we've seen the nature of the reign of the sun. So lastly, we're going to turn to the final verses and we're going to see the psalmist's call to respond to God's mercy. So now for the fourth and final point. point. In order for you to tremble, at the wrath of God against his enemies, so that you will joyfully repent and take refuge in the Son, You must behold the breathtaking mercy and love of God for his enemies, so that you will respond with joyful repentance. Again, you need to behold the breathtaking mercy and love of God for his enemies, so that you will joyfully repent. Look again at verses 10 through 12. Now, these last three verses of the psalm contain the purpose for why the psalmist writes. We see that this is so with the word therefore in verse 10. And we also see that this is the purpose when it is filled with commands. Up to this point, we have seen truths just put on display for us to show us the nature of all these things that are going on. But now the psalmist is telling us what we need to do. Now we are seeing what Messiah and Yahweh want through the words that have been said so far. That purpose is for the rebels to turn to Yahweh and his Messiah and finding blessing by taking refuge in him. This mercy and love of God are breathtaking. Think about it. This is unmerited grace at its height. Let's see how this plays out. Follow along because this is where it all is heading. The first command, as you can see, is directed at the kings. They are told to show discernment, to be wise. And joined to this is the command to the rulers of the earth to be warned. These commands to those kings and rulers who are taking their stand against Yahweh in verse 2. And rather than continue in his holy wrath, God is showing his mercy by calling them to consider their ways. They're to consider their rebellion. They're to consider how they have provoked Yahweh, the one, one true God, one sovereign God. And they're to consider how they have rejected the Messiah's reign. The next step to repentance is found in verse 11. Rather than tell them to cower in fear, rather than telling them to run and hide, rather than tell them to come to the final court for judgment, he calls on them to serve Yahweh. John Calvin again remarks, "To to prevent them from supposing that the service to which he calls them is grievous, he teaches them by the word rejoice, how pleasant and desirable it is since it furnishes matter of true gladness. This is a call for joyful service, and it's balanced with the terms of fear and trembling. These words tell us nothing less that the mode of service that we can offer to our God is to be honoring and humble before him, because he is no ordinary master. He is the king of kings, but he is also a good and merciful king. The final verse, verse 12, gives some final and balanced instruction. The command is to kiss the sun. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the word son. I don't know if it's noted in footnotes, but you may not know that the word son in verse 12 is from the Hebrew or the Aramaic term for son, while the one in verse 7 is the Hebrew term. Why use the Aramaic term when all the rest of this is in Hebrew? After all, he did use that Hebrew term before, Well, Alan Ross, in his commentary on the Psalms, he submits that since the pagan nations are the ones who are being addressed, the psalmist used that term since they knew the language. It's a picture of his mercy, not just towards Israel, but to the whole world. Even those pagan nations who are revolting against him are hearing this message that you need to submit to the son. And the command is that this son, they're supposed to kiss. Now, you've probably seen shows or movies or something where somebody kisses the ring of a noble. And that's a picture of loving, reverence submission. The same hand that would have struck the enemies is the hand that's being offered to be kissed. The same hand of war that would have broken the enemies is the hand that is offering peace. You should also note the urgency that accompanies this command. Time is short, and the king will not wait forever for his enemies to turn to him. If he is not reverenced, he will be angry, as we see in verse 12. He alone in all the universe has the right to be angry, since he is the sovereign creator of the universe. He deserves our reverence, our respect, our worship. And where will this anger lead? It will lead to their perishing. They will be wiped out in a moment. The rule of this king will not bring peace for everyone. Only those who lovingly submit to him will find it. But the psalmist does not end on this note of destruction. Rather, he points them to blessing. He points them to salvation. He does this by saying, blessed, happy, are all those who take refuge in him. Refuge is the place of protection. It's the place of safety. Yahweh and his Messiah, who have been shown to be undefeatable foes and their wrath being unbearable, they are called to take refuge in the very God who would dash them in pieces. Taking refuge in the Son and thus in Yahweh is the mark of those who believe that his counsel is wise and good. To take refuge in the Lord is synonymous with having saving faith. Now this last stanza is in line with the character of the prophets. Their mission was to expose the people to their sin and bring them back to Yahweh. We see this as early as Moses. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses tells the people that if they disobey and are exiled, God's curses will come upon them. And he says, when this happens, when they have been facing God's wrath, they will call to mind God's promises and return to him. Solomon, in his prophetic voice, we see or heard earlier that he tells us that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of finding salvation. It's designed to teach them to hate their sin and to turn away from evil. Isaiah, after indicting Judah for their wickedness in chapter 1, says this in verses 18 through 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This echoes the final stanza of Psalm 2. The language of obedience reflects service to Yahweh. And the threat of the sword is a warning that his wrath is quickly kindled. You will be destroyed if you do not turn to Christ. And if you do turn to him, he promises blessing. In 2 Kings 17, the narrator comments on the history of the nation and of God's merciful call through the prophets. In verse 13, he writes, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I have commanded your fathers that I sent you sent to you by my servants the prophets. Jeremiah reminded his audience of this repeatedly. In Jeremiah 7:25 he writes from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day I have persistently sent all my servants the prophets to them, day after day. The purpose of God in giving these warnings and giving these calls to return to him is because of his love for his people. He wants everyone to repent, and he doesn't take delight in the destruction of the wicked. Now, many of us are parents. And if we're not parents, we've had parents, or, yeah, we've had parents. Um, But, so putting the issue of salvation aside for just a moment, Some of us uh, may have had children that have turned away and made some bad decisions. And some of those decisions have turned into habits. Some of those habits have turned out to be very destructive. If we love our children, we have been leading them and guiding them, warning them at times, appealing to them to change what they're doing. And hopefully we've also been calling them to repent and turn to Christ. If things have gotten bad, like with adult children who have turned away in the relationship and, and estrange themselves from the family, the parents in that relationship are usually waiting for the time that the child will ret- return and be restored, like in the prodigal son par- parable. Rather than immediately cut them off and write them out of the will, the parents are patient. They may be hurt, but they're patient. And as opportunities arise to offer reconciliation, they do so, hoping that that relationship can be restored. And just as parents seek reconciliation with their estranged children, so God wants his people, the people that have continually rebelled against them, he wants them to be reconciled to himself. Now, there's two main points of application to take away from this. The first is this Have you taken the commands and implications of this psalm and applied them to yourself? Have you learned the fear of the Lord? Has this fear of the Lord caused you to take sin seriously? And most importantly, has the fear of the Lord caused you to take refuge in the Son, Jesus Christ, a refuge that is a delight to your heart? If the answer to these questions is an honest no, I want you to consider these things very seriously. The fact that you're sitting here in this church is a good sign, if you're not his already, that God is calling you to repent, to turn to him. He's telling you that your life of independence from him, of ruling your own life, of disregarding his word, will not be tolerated. As it says in Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. If you're hearing the gospel preached week by week, if you're being exposed to the living word of God regularly, and you have not turned to Christ, you are in great danger. The deceitfulness of sin is hardening your heart, and the wrath of God is being stored up against you. Listen to this warning from Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. The author writes, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is a warning that we all need to take to heart, even if we're his, because sin is so deceitful. And if our lives are encompassed in sin, how can we know we're his? If we're not hearing what God says, we are hardening our hearts against him. If you do not listen to his words, you will not enter his rest. This was the fate of those who were warned um, by the prophets that we read about in Kings and Jeremiah, but they didn't return to him. So when you hear his voice, be ready to respond in faith. Turn to him, find refuge in him, find blessing. If you're concerned that your life has been such that you're an irreconcilable enemy, that you are beyond forgiveness, I have a word of hope for you. In Romans chapter five, Paul tells us in verse eight, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in verse ten, he says, For while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. In Titus three five, Paul also writes, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. His mercy is toward his enemies, and we were all once enemies, and he has brought us near. He has made us his own. He has shown his love toward us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. You only need to put your faith in the saving work of Christ. He gives his righteousness to you and you only need to receive it by faith. The second point of application is this. If you're a believer, you need to remember that you are an ambassador for Christ. George Gunn wrote the following concerning the psalm in an article published a few years ago, and forgive me for the long quote, but it's good. Christ's present ministry is a priestly ministry designed to reconcile men to God. His rule as king awaits his coming and his second advent. Church ministry is not is not one of establishing a kingdom. It is a ministry of reconciliation, inviting sinners to find peace with God through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. When the kingly ministry of Christ is initiated, rather than inviting sinners to peace and reconciliation, his focus among unbelievers in the world will include dashing the nations to pieces like a potter smashing an unwanted vessel. Therefore, kings should be warned. And believers should worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling, doing homage to the Son and taking refuge in Him. You have been appointed for service to the King who will soon set up His kingdom on this earth. He will rule in righteousness and justice and He will have eliminated all of His enemies. And in the meantime, we are to make disciples and we are to urge people to be reconciled to God. This psalm presents a method of evangelism, which is why I have titled this message The Gospel According to Psalm 2. This message is made, uh, made use of in part by a tract called Two Ways to Live, and I don't know if you've heard of it, but this is how it goes. In that method, God is presented as the king who created the universe, and he created man to be rulers underneath him. But these men rebelled against God. It, says, it goes on to say that God will return to judge those rebels, but with death, but he also sent his son, Jesus, to be the new king. And this king did not just come to rule, but to die for sinners, taking the punishment of sin upon himself. And the tract closes by presenting the two ways to live. Those two ways are either to continue to live in rebellion and face his wrath, or to repent and believe in the Son, and instead of wrath, enjoy everlasting life and peace. Now, perhaps you are a believer, but you have realized guilt, in what we've heard today, and you don't feel like you are a worthy ambassador, I want to turn your attention to one last passage before we close. In First Samuel 12, after the people had asked for a king, and they realized their guilt of rejecting God as being king over them, Excuse me, Samuel spoke to the people words of comfort. He says in First Samuel 12:20, "Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside." From following Yahweh, but serve Yahweh with all your heart. In verse 24, he continues, Only fear Yahweh and serve him faithfully with all your heart and consider the great things he has done for you. He has already shown his mercy to them. And it continues, When we have failed, we need to look to Christ, who bore the penalty and who by his spirit empowers us to serve him. You are called to persevere since it is God. Who works in you? God is always calling us to repent of our rebellion, even those who are already His. He has given us His Holy Spirit to guide us, to renew us, strengthen us, and to be with us on the mission that He has sent us on. This morning, we have seen the need to repent of rebellion against Yahweh, the need to repent of our lack of fear of Him, the need to repent of failing to serve Him with our lives, and finally, how God is calling us to joyfully submit to Him and serve Him while taking refuge in the sun, all of this has shown us that we need to tremble at the wrath of god against his enemies so that you will repent and joyfully serve the son that is the point that the psalmist has brought us to and he is inviting us commanding us to serve yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling we are to worship the son we're to find our blessing by taking refuge in him The Christian life is a life of continual repentance. Examine yourselves to see in which ways that you are falling short of what he calls us to and just turn to Christ. He has paid for your sins. He promises blessing. In February of 74, Michael Haken awoke three nights in a row in a cold sweat, fearful he was going to die. When he had heard what he had heard about Jesus from his Christian friends and his future wife, About Jesus coming back to reign had gripped him. He fell on his knees, crying out to God for salvation. God graciously opened his eyes to show him the Son, to know the Son, to know that in Christ there is salvation, not only from sin's punishment, but also from sin's dominion. God had taken Michael Haken's heart, given him refuge, and placed him on a path of joyful obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God full of mercy, and we just ask your forgiveness for the times that we have rebelled. We ask that you would give us renewed hearts to turn away from sin and to look to you always. Give us hearts that long for your kingdom, that seek to serve you in joyful submission. Give us hearts for the lost, who will one day face the breaking power of your rod if they are not turned to you. Give us peace as we seek to worship you, knowing that we fall short in so many ways, as we find refuge in the Son who has covered our sin. And grant us the blessing that you promise as we take refuge in Jesus Christ, who died for our sin, who brings us into your kingdom to be with you forever. Amen.